Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, it is just a little indicator of larger threats Man. My dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? And I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey everyone, welcome back. I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. It's been so nice because we actually had a break from the rain. And it's really unusual to hear me say that because Los Angeles has been in a constant drought for a really long time. And now we have too much water. So I've been able to get out and do more things like following all of the wonderful springtime happenings that occur when it's not raining. Like there was this really amazing hummingbird hawk moth in one of my plants, which I posted a reel on Instagram on it. And they are such magical garden creatures. They only appear during twilight, like right after the sun sets and before it gets dark. And they just start around pollinating things. They're nighttime pollinators. They started out as those dreaded tomato worms. And they turn into these gigantic moths. Because if you've ever had those tomato worms, like they get really big. So the moths are really big, but they're beautiful. And they look like hummingbirds. It's crazy. So <laughs> I never realized that I live for it until I see them. But one of the cool things is getting out there and actually preparing my garden and welcoming some bees into the yard. The reason I'm talking so much about my garden is because this upcoming episode is one of my favorites. I got to talk to Elisa of Zubisu, who is a master beekeeper and offers mentorships to new beekeepers, apiary visits to help streamline the process or help diagnose problems, bee education, and so much more, specifically honeybees. But the cool thing is she is a certified honey sommelier and she offers honey tastings. You'll hear that in episode two. This is a two-part episode. So without further ado, I'm going to let Alyssa welcome you into the secret and wonderful world of honeybees. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So please grab a cuppa and join us in this In the Company of Friends talk. Enjoy. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. I'm, I have headphones on, but I have a window open, so I just want to make sure it's not distracting. No. Okay. Are you listening to the rain? Yes. I love it. I do too, except for I got really soaked. I ended up having <laughs> to, to walk in sideways rain. That you know, Probably like the two minutes of sideways rain today, and that's when I was outside. Oh, of course. Oh, soaking no. Soaking wet. <laughs> 
And I mean, I haven't owned an umbrella in like years because when I lived in New York, it was just not useful when there's a million other people around you. And then here it never rains. So it's like, oh, maybe I, maybe I should get an umbrella. <laughs> maybe just to have it in the back of the closet just for, for that one day, right? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're pretty squeaky clean in Los Angeles at this point. Like, all of the grime has been washed away. We've had so yeah. much rain. It's just crazy. It's wonderful. I mean, like, yeah. I can't wait to go up to the mountains and check out the snow when it's a little bit safer to go up there. And um, <laughs> when you'll be able to come back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, it's really good. It's I don't have to water my garden. And <laughs> I know. And everything is so green. It's just beautiful. It is. I wanted to ask you, I was thinking on the way home, I'm like, what do bees do when it rains? So um, when it's like below 60 or so, the bees will just stay in. Um, I mean, I guess also like if it rains in a tropical climate, they'll still stay in anyways, because they're so small. And it's like, you know, anything that can affect them physically, like wind, like a lot of winds, or, you know, like a droplet of rain that could like floor them because they're so tiny. So they'll just, they'll stay inside. Yeah. And if they'd leave, it could, it could be like a quick in and out of the hive to go to the bathroom, but they won't go be out foraging. They'll just be inside the hive. Oh, wow. Okay. So they leave to go to the bathroom. They're not just, I, I never thought about that. Yeah. So the beehive is one of the most sterile places, um, because of that's one of the things because of that and the only time that they even during cold weather when they're kind of like clustered together the only time they'll ever go to the bathroom is you know quick in and out if the weather outside will permit but when it's really cold their digestion and everything kind of slows down so their need to to go isn't as often as it would be if it were warmer wow that's fascinating i had this big giant patch of sunflowers it was so beautiful and after that year like they never came back I keep trying to grow them and they won't grow back for whatever reason but I had so many bees in the yard at that time and you know they've got that big giant center area with all the little Mm -hmm. tiny flowers and that's where the bees would go and their pockets in the back of their legs would get full and they would just get covered I mean they were like these little golden jewels covered in all of this pollen and then sometimes I guess they fell asleep (laughs) on these sunflowers and I would just kind of see them frozen there one night and then the next morning they were still in the same spot and it was like oh did they die so what probably happened was they may have been out foraging too late And then they, because they can only, bees have terrible vision, you know, because everything is done in the dark. So their other senses are very keen, but their vision is just terrible. So they'll navigate by the location of the sun on the horizon. So they could have been out too late and it could have gotten too cold and they thought maybe I'll just stay here. And was it more than one bee? Not at the same time, but mm-hmm. at different times, I would notice that. And then sometimes it just seemed like I'd come back 
you know, later in the day and it, and the bee was still there. And then I would come back like a third time and go and check it out because I was really interested. And I, you know, like it just made me sad that maybe it had yeah. died and then it was gone, you know? So I'm assuming that, I mean, I guess it could have fallen off of the sunflower. It could have, but it also could have warmed up because sometimes if you see like, so we have this one location where we have bees and it's just not the best. It doesn't get really good warm morning sun. So sometimes we'll see a bunch of bees on the ground because they're just too cold to get just to make it that much further into the hive. So we'll sweep them up, put them all in the sun, and then you'll just see them slowly start to come to life. Oh, so it could be one of those things. It's pretty neat to see that. Like you think they're dead, but they're, they're not, they're just slowing all of their body functions down. So it's just critical, whatever, you know, the critical things that need to be working are working. And then once they can get warm enough, they just surprise you. They're back from the dead. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Wow. You just reminded me of something that my daughter likes to do, which is, you know, if we find a bee just kind of crawling around and not looking like it's too healthy. I mean, usually it's on the cement or something. Mm -hmm. She'll mix up a little bit of sugar water and take it out there and just kind of put a drop on the end of her finger. And usually the bee will crawl up and drink it. And a few minutes later, it flies off again. How neat. And what a special experience. Mm-hmm. Did you prompt her to do that? Or does she just do it on her own? She did it on her own. Oh. And, you know, I mean, I think part of it is when I was growing up, I had this tremendous fear of insects that was instilled in me. And it was really, I I remember I was a bookkeeper at a church and the pastor was also a psychologist. We'd sit there and talk all the time. And I was telling him the story and he said, you know, you're really lucky that you know the etiology of where your fear of insects came from, because then you can overcome it. And I used to run screaming from bees and everything you could think of. And so when I finally, I was, I was probably in my twenties, I realized that I needed to get this fear of insects and bugs and creepy crawlies under control. And I went to the bookstore and I picked up a book. I don't even remember what it was. It was on insects, but I don't remember exactly what it was. And I started reading it and I became so fascinated by the almost superpowers that insects have. And, you know, I mean, bees can make honey and collect pollen and produce wax and all of this stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, pretty amazing. And, and I know that we'll get into all of that and, and, and more stuff that they do. But it wasn't anything that I had ever really considered. You know, I liked honey and I knew they came from bees, but I also knew that bees stung. And, <laughs> and that was it. You know? <laughs> so after reading about all of these different insects, when I finally had kids, I would take them outside and we'd learn about all of these different bugs. And I let them know that honeybees really are not out there to kill you. <laughs> they just, you know, they all they want to do is just get some pollen and, you know, they're very busy. And, um, and so she has this really healthy appreciation for insects and bugs. And so does my son. So I feel pretty happy that I was able to give him that gift. Yeah, I mean, that's, especially later on in life, to actively want to overcome something like that. 
and then be able to like set your kids up in a good way too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. No. Yeah. I've, I actually almost jumped out of a car once. So. Um. Oh my gosh. I mean, it, you, <laughs> ca- you came from an, you came from a family that like, you know, was doing loop-de-loops up in the air. And it's funny that you were afraid of just a tiny bug. But Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> that, now that you put it in that perspective, yeah, that is pretty funny. <laughs> and for those who are wondering what that loop-de-loop was about is I grew up flying in planes. My dad had a Cessna and it was an acrobatic Cessna. So that was one of my favorite things to do was to go and do the loops in the sky and whatever else we did. It was It was a lot of fun. So Yeah, during that same time, I was afraid of insects. (laughs) So there's so many different varieties of bees, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's the California carpenter bee, which are really big, and the big giant bumblebees, which are beautiful as well. And then you start going down through to smaller ones, which are the honeybees. I don't know if there's even smaller ones than that. Um, and then there's wasps, which I'm not even sure if those are in the bee family. Yes, they are. So there are like 20,000 species of bees in the world. And wow. in, I know, isn't that crazy? And then mm-hmm. in, um, no, excuse me, 25,000 species of bees. In North America, we have 4,000. And alone in California, we have 1,600. So that's, that's, a lot of na- that's a lot of native bees that we have. Um, they range in size from one sixteenth of an inch to one and a half inches and the honeybee is about half an inch long. So there are bees that are smaller than, than the honeybee. And do they all make honey? They do make a form of honey. Um, so honeybees and tropical stingless bees are the only bees that live in synergistic colonies with thousands of bees. Most other bees are solitary, meaning that they will lay an egg and leave the developing larva and the baby bee the sustenance it needs to grow to hatch, and then they will leave. So they do make a form. They do collect, you know, nectar and pollen, but they don't make honey like the honeybees do. You can still eat it if you can find it, but it won't be in that great of a quantity. And, it, and it's not dehydrated down like honeybee honey is. Um, and actually, honeybees actually aren't even native to the United States. They are a subspecies. Oh, really? of, yeah, they're a subspecies of the European honeybee. So, oh. yeah, it's so they were imported at some mm-hmm. point. Yeah, they're imported from Europe. And then we've also had, um, like, in Southern California and like the Southern states, we've had the Africanized honeybee, which is also called a scoot. I'm going to butcher this 100. percent Just to make it easy, we call it like the scoots, the scoots bee. Um, but that's what people, that's a bee that has been um, made its way up from Brazil, from South America. And that's the more aggressive bee that people refer to when they say there's a killer bee. That's kind of what people think of because the European honeybee is, is a little more docile. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, even within the honeybee, honeybee realm, there's, sub, there's different species of different types of honeybees. But you won't know what, yeah, it's interesting. You don't know. I mean, if you buy bees, you know kind of what you're getting. But like if you're just, if you get beehives from like rescues or you cut them out of somebody's house, you don't really know what you have unless you were to send the bee off to be tested. 
Um, there's some telltale signs of like coloring um, and things like that that you can tell, but for the most part, it's hard. It's hard to tell just by visual cues what kind of honeybee it is. I was just, I just want to jump back for a second because I thought it was really interesting that the Africanized bee has made its way up. So it's actually migrating north? No, it's it only kind of where it can survive with the weather and the climate because we have pretty temperate weather here in Southern California. It's able to thrive here. It won't be able to thrive in like, Northern California, or I'm not even sure how far north it goes. Maybe I would say, I think parts of Arizona, parts of Southern Oklahoma, not super likely in Southern Oklahoma, but um, definitely parts of Texas have Africanized bees too. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever seen an Africanized bee and maybe it's because of what you just said. Yeah. That- you wouldn't know you wouldn't know because they look so similar to one another. And they're not all like, they definitely have a bad rep because, you know, everybody's like, Oh, they're aggressive, but like anything can be aggressive. Bees are wild, you Mm -hmm. know, and when it feels threatened, the bee is going to try to sting you. (laughs) Right. You know, I, um, I was over at white point last spring and it's just been too rainy for me to get over there but you you know it's basically this enormous super bloom that happens over there and when the Mm -hmm. sun's out there's so many bees the air is buzzing with them and i love um, that i i do too it's like a mental massage to me (laughs) my brain's getting massaged by this droning it's just so wonderful and I was with a friend who knew absolutely nothing about bees other than they stung and was just really afraid. And I was like, no, you got to listen to this sound and it's really beautiful. And it's it's just always so, I don't know that it's necessarily amazing, but it's just this kind of beautiful thing to be able to just walk through the bees and they're, they're not doing anything to you mm-hmm. because they're so busy just mining for gold for all that gold dust and these flowers. And it's just yeah. really yeah. lovely. I know. And it's like, it's a fear-based thing too. It's, I'm sure mm-hmm. it, it took a while to get comfortable for walking around, but like a bee won't just outright sting you. She'll come up and she'll give you a little bump to be like, Hey, don't do that. Or <laughs> she'll warn you a little bit because it's self-sacrifice, you know, like nobody wants to just die. <laughs> so what is the behavior that you need to look for? Um, you know, I, I don't even think I've ever really been bumped by a bee or maybe I have. I thought the wind blew the bee into me. Um, <laughs> <'cause> the wind, <laughs> there was some wind. Um, yeah. But is there a particular behavior that you should look for when you're walking anywhere where there's a bunch of bees? I mean, for the most part, like you're so big, you know, like we're giants to bees. So like when I'm working my hives, I usually just work slow. But like if I'm out just in just walking around in in normal everyday to day life, I just I don't really pay much mind to them because we're so big to them. They can easily move around us. But Mm. say, you know, you are in an area where there are a bunch of bees pollinating, just, I guess, just move with intention, you know, don't go try to grab a flower that has a bee on it or, (laughs) I mean, the bee would be way faster than you anyways, that wouldn't be possible, but (laughs) Um, 
I mean, we're so big that we move so slow to them that as it is. You know, maybe if you're at a swimming pool or something. I remember when I was a kid, actually, I was swimming at our pool and there was a big, big, big bumblebee. I think I'm trying to remember now that I know more about bees, like maybe it was a carpenter bee, but it was a big bee. I remember just being like very still and it was kind of just scoping me out. I knew not to swat it or try to do anything because that's the last thing you want to do is swat a bee. If you're out gardening, just kind of let it do its thing, move with it, move around it, but just don't swat it because then it will kind of, it will come bump you and let you know like, hey, that's not cool. Or, you know, she may just eventually sting you. And so you did not get stung, which is good. No, because I, no, no. I think those big bees are really painful. I've never been stung yeah. by one of the big bees. Me neither. I've heard that they're really painful as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've heard that like certain places, the bees, those big ones are almost intentional in coming down to sting. And so I know honeybees will die right after they sting you. Mm -hmm. And that's because, am I right that their stinger is connected to their intestinal tract? And so when that stinger comes out, so does everything that's inside of them. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. So they have barbs on their stinger, and that's what causes it to latch into your skin. So it kind of just pulls out their that, yeah, their whole bottom of their body. (laughs) Yeah, poor things. Sounds so unpleasant. I know Um, it is. It is. (laughs) Yeah. And so the bigger bees, I think, don't have the same thing. They're able to sting a number of times, or at least there are other bees that are able to do that. Um, I don't know. I mean, like with wasps and stuff, it's like mm-hmm. they, you know, they can just, they're, they show no mercy. Right. They'll just keep, <laughs> just keep going. Wasps <laughs> are scary. Yeah. <laughs> a little frightening. Um, so you mentioned hives. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your hives and, and do you um, rescue hives that end up in people's homes? So I, in Los Angeles, I have a bee buddy here that I work with. His name is Gary Chase and we, he gets a lot of calls for removals. So I will help him with them if they are like in a water meter, somebody's house. It's not my preferred thing to do. It's pretty messy and it's and it's really involved. Um, but that's how we get our bees. We don't like to buy bees. We feel like it's not really a sustainable way to keep bees. And also we feel like bees that you know already established in the wild are more genetically stronger than a bee that's been bred for a specific trait because you know they're adapted to their location and there's they are um, more resistant to you know disease and mites and things like that that can really harm the bees so that makes sense I mean just doing removals and stuff it's like you gotta you know especially if it's a big one in a wall you got to fix it after (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's a lot of labor and it just it doesn't bring me as much joy as I get from you know being that bridge between the bees and the public on what we can do to help and things like that and you know just being in the hive itself Mm -hmm. so when you're working with your bees are Mm -hmm. You know, I know that there's a couple of different um, 
you, you can go online and just watch videos and all of that. Are yeah. you using smoke? Are you, are you suiting up? So I always, I mean, I, I approach the beehive as like, you know, it's a sacred place. It's their home. So I try to be as good of a house guest as I could be <laughs> and to also take care of myself as well. So yes, I always wear a suit because you never know. You never know what could happen and it's safety first. Safety for the bees because they're not going to die because they can't, you know, you can get stung through your suit, but it's not as likely because the suit mm -hmm. is thick enough. So it's like safety for the bees of being able to just, be mad at me, but not sting me. And then safety for myself that I'm not getting stung either. Um, right. So I wear gloves. Sometimes I wear gloves. Sometimes I don't. It just kind of depends on how, you know, the hive is and their temperament. And it can change from day to day and what the weather is, what the conditions are like in the hive, what kind of what's going on, things like that. Um, I do always have a smoker on hand, especially because we keep bees in an urban area. We have to be really cognizant of neighbors and gardeners and kids playing and kind of what's going on people walking by things like that so we always have the smoker on hand we don't we'll you know kind of give a little puff to the hive but we never over smoke them um, because you just you know you listen like you said when you're walking through the field and you hear their decibel level of them all buzzing when they're mad the decibel level will be really high and then as they calm down the decibel level will be lower so it's just kind of paying attention to those nuances and just being super present within the hive to kind of know like, oh, this they're not happy right now. I should close this up and just kind of paying attention to their cues. Yeah. And I know that keeping hives is a lot of work mm -hmm. and a lot of education. And then there's also ordinances in cities that prevent you sometimes from having those hives and like you mm -hmm. said people walking around and all of that especially in urban areas so that's probably not the best way for the average person like myself um, even though I have a huge yard and I've thought about it I have an alley that runs behind my house I have mm -hmm. dogs on both sides of me and I don't think that bees would be particularly happy or safe for my neighbors for me to have them in the yard so what are some of the suggestions that you have for people to be able to help honeybees thrive, or I guess all bees thrive? Well, it's funny that you say like describing your property, it sounds almost perfect until you're like, oh, I have dogs though. And then <laughs> right. other things It's like, you know, that alleyway is like key because there's not a lot of traffic and things like that. And you also have a great garden, which is one of the best things that we can all do as an individual is plant something. Um, the urban landscape is like one of the fastest growing landscapes and we're replacing pasture land and woodland and, you know, wild fields with track homes and turf grass. So we're creating just a desert for all pollinators. But the thing with what we can do as individuals is every single action makes one big action so it, it makes a big impact no matter how small it is like the smallest container garden can help like I don't have much room where I live but I was able to plant some lavender and I have some basil that I let bolt I have onions that I grow that will flower as well 
and I and and have strawberries. So yeah, those little flowers are so neat looking. And I see all sorts of bees and butterflies on them. And it's it's just, you know, the tiniest little garden, but they'll find it. Right. And, and they're there. And it's, you know, letting your veggies bowl is probably one of the best things you could do. It's beneficial for you because you'll get seeds from it. But also the pollinators love that. Providing some water. I'm sure people who have pools find that they always have bees in their pool. And once they find your pool, they're never going to leave. So I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, setting out some kind of water source for the bees with corks in it or rocks or something for them to land on so they can have water is is super helpful because bees will consume up to like 53 gallons a year of water, not including the water that they pull from nectar because they need the water for basic like life functions and homeostasis digestion but also to help cool the hive down and things like that so water is something that's also super important for them to have access to is that 53 gallons per bee or per hive and like how big is a hive so a hive can be in the wild I mean, this means nothing to me because I don't really, I'm not really good at the metric system. (laughs) But what I read was like, I feel like I think in nature, a beehive is like maybe 10 10 liters or so. (laughs) So I guess if we were to think in terms of two liter soda bottles. (laughs) Right. That's what I was just thinking, like five two liter bottles filled with (laughs) bees. <laughs> wow. That's yeah, a lot so of bees. It is, it is. But you know, in the way we keep bees now is um oh, sorry, I take this back, ten gallons. The average size of a of a colony is ten gallons. Okay. So I guess you can look at that in terms of like a gallon of milk. <laughs> ten ten gallons of milk. That's just still a lot of bees. That's might even be I, I think that's even more. Yeah, I'm not very good with the metric system. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel like 10 gallons of milk is more than two liters for sure. I feel like it's a liter, a liter and a half or something. Right. Maybe. I don't know. We'll go with that. You're right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a lot of bees. And that size is always fluctuating depending on the time of year it is. So like during spring, the bees are rapidly expanding because there's so much forage and there's so much things blooming so that the queen knows that she can, you know, really ramp up her egg laying and that there will be enough food coming in to sustain the whole colony. Whereas when it gets to be like summertime, end of summer, the dearth, you know, maybe like August, September, depending on where you live, where it gets really dry, the queen will slow down, the colony will shrink in size because there isn't enough resources to go around. Mm-hmm. Same thing goes for winter and colder climates. The colony will shrink a lot as well because they're they're not out foraging if, if it's a colder climate and they're only consuming whatever resources they have in the hive. Are hives that are kept, each one of those boxes, smaller than mm-hmm. a natural hive would be? And then it kind of sounds like there's a cap to how big uh, even a natural hive will get? They're actually bigger. They're bigger oh. than the, than a hive in nature. So when it comes to like in, in the wild, bees prefer the quality versus the quantity of bees. So they um, 
like how we kind of were talking about over email, like pheromones and stuff. Mm -hmm. So bees, bees will talk to each other through their pheromones. And then when a queen lays an egg, that egg has a specific pheromone. So they can tell if this is going to be a good egg or not. And if it's not a good egg, then they will abort it. They can also tell if there is like a mite. These varroa mites are these mites that that feed on bees, the fat bodies of bees. And we can treat them. There's a miticide you can use to treat them. Some people choose not to. Some people do. Some bees are more resistant than others. But bees can sense that if there's a, a mite on a developing larva. And then they will uncap that pupa and they will take it out. So they don't need a lot of bees. They just want a lot of really strong bees. That, that makes I, I just like branched off into 20 different things. No, no, no. <laughs> that, that absolutely makes sense. I'm reading this fascinating book. It's called Of Wolves to Men. And there's a whole section in there where the author, trying to remember his name now. Um, I don't remember, but I'll put it in the show notes. The author is talking. Barry Lopez. Barry Lopez. Thank you. Have you read the yeah. book? No, I was just, I just looked it up. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm here for you, girl. Thank you. I love that. <laughs> girls supporting girls, women supporting women. We need more of that. <laughs> um, he was talking about how wolves are so instinctual. I mean, he really went into such depth into this instinctual quality of wolves. And I've read some of that about insects as well. So that completely makes sense that if, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of animals, a lot of wild animals are like this, that they do sense a weakness or something that could be inherently harmful and this is going to be the weak link in the hive. And it doesn't sound nice, but it's survival of the fittest. Exactly. And it does help yeah. strengthen the hive. So that completely makes sense. How do the mites get in there? I mean, are they, do they infiltrate the hive or is it in pollen so that? So it's, it's hard to see say how it starts (laughs) um I mean they breed within the developing bees so I mean to say where it first came in I mean they pupate within the hive but it can happen from a bee that drifted in from another colony that could have mites or it could be a wild colony or a colony that was close to another colony that had died out and the mites saw this other colony went to that one they can get it from bee to bee from flower it's the research on getting it from a flower is not that strong, but it's shown as a possibility. But it's one of the main things that beekeepers face as a big problem because it can easily decimate a hive because they're vectors for disease as well. So it's like once you have these mites, they are weakening your hive and then it leaves the bees susceptible to all sorts of other diseases. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you had read in the news uh, a couple months ago. So there were no varroa in Australia. It's pretty much on every continent except for Australia until recently. They found a hive that had varroa mites. I'm not quite sure what part of Australia, maybe like north northwestern Australia. And their ag department, or I'm not sure who controls it, they were just like, burn the hive. Because that's, that is how serious varroa mites is. They don't want it to spread at all. 
Um, and then it ended up still spreading. I'm not quite oh sure if gosh. they were able to kind of quarantine it because it's hard. You know, bees fly. They fly miles to pollinate things. And the queen will fly up to nine miles to mate. So it's like this range that the bees are covering is so high that it's hard. You know, I think they burned all these hives within like a certain radius of that one hive just to make sure that they didn't have any row. But I think that now they have it. Is it possible that it's airborne? No. Because they, no. They're like these, I'll send you a photo. They're these little red, they're just these little mites. They just look like little. Like little red spider-like things? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You just don't want to see one of those. (laughs) And they're like, they're small to the eye, but they're big on a bee. Right everything's relative right so yeah I could see that um wow all the things that you have to think about as a beekeeper you know like the mites the other diseases so when you were talking about bees flying do bees stay specifically with one colony or do they sometimes go hey I'm too tired to fly all the way home. So I'm gonna just rest in this box or this this hive or or you know, there's like there's a cute bee over here. I you know, I'd like to yeah. meet with or whatever. Or do they just like for life stay with the one hive? So drift can happen. Um like their hive colonies close to each other, a bee may accidentally go into the wrong colony. So there's guard bees that will patrol the entrance and they will kind of sniff out as the, the foragers as they come back and they can tell you belong to this hive because you have the pheromone of this hive. So each hive has its own specific pheromone. But, you know, if a bee shows up um, at the wrong hive and they're full of pollen or full of nectar, they come, you know, bearing gifts, then they'll be like, oh, well, you could stay. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there are such things as bees coming to rob other bees' hives. So bees, during times of dearth, usually is when this happens because there's not many resources. They can find a weak hive and they will go and they will just steal everything in that hive and you'll see fighting. Oh, my gosh. It's 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 a sight to see this happening. And it's, and it's also really heartbreaking because you can't really, you can kind of like damper it a little bit. But you can't really just stop it because it's, you know, it's nature. It's, it's nature. It's happening. Nature's brutal. It, they, I know. <laughs> it's crazy. And then sometimes even wasps will go into a hive and try to steal nectar. You know, you're desperate. You want to live. So they'll do what they can. And like if it happens to like a managed colony, people will say, oh, take a wet sheet, put a wet sheet over the hive. And that will kind of like, you know, mask it for now so that they can't because they can't figure out how to get in. Or they have these things called robber screens that you're supposed to put over your entrance. And that way the bees who don't live there will have a harder time figuring out how to get in and out of the hive. But yeah, it can happen. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so fascinating to me that insects have this whole entire world, this whole entire mm-hmm. society and culture and the, all this stuff that we don't even know about. It's like the yeah, secret world, we don't right? Even see. It is. It's pretty cool because if you think about it, the hive is completely dark. So the most, you know, sacred of things we're not even seeing because it's, 
you know, we look at a hive in the light and it's like, we can kind of see like, oh, this is happening. We can see this dance happening. We can see this and that, but we don't see a majority of the communication between the bees, which I feel like is the most special thing. Yeah. Because all it's all done in the dark, which is so neat. That's so interesting that uh, because it's all done in the dark, their vision is not so great, mm-hmm. like you said. And mm-hmm. so there's this whole pheromone trail that they're following everywhere. And then plants are releasing scents and their own pheromones to attract these bees because that's how they get to pollinate and, you know, continue yeah. their life cycles. So the way bees pollinate are through like positive and negative charges. So like when the bee is flying through the air, she will accumulate a positive electric charge in her body and the flowers have a negative charge. So the bees are able to detect the negative charges that are going through the flowers and they're able to find the sources. So when a bee will come to pollinate a flower, its electrical signature will change alerting that whoever comes next that this flower doesn't have the resources the bee is looking for. So it will take, you know, maybe a minute or 30 seconds for the electrical charge to come back to normal so the flower can increase its sugar content or whatever it needs, and then another bee can come and pollinate it. There was a recent study in Tel Aviv um, from Tel Aviv University that states that plants hearing the buzzing of the low frequency sound of bees can increase their sugar content of their nectar 12 to 20 percent and that this increase will yeah and that this increase will occur within three minutes after the buzzing wow so like i mean when i think of that i think of you know like walt disney movies where the flowers are dancing in the pots (laughs) and like (laughs) i'm kind of thinking talking like the vibration that's caused by the bees is almost like stimulating the sugar to be produced, kind of like, you know, milking Mm -hmm. the flour, milking the sugar. Yeah. Yeah. And how different flowers need different types of pollinators, like, because each type of bee will pollinate differently. So like a bumblebee is so big that it kind of has like a buzz pollination and it vibrates its body and then everything comes and just pops up and sticks to it. (laughs) (laughs) whereas if you watch a you know (laughs) if you watch a honeybee pollinate it's a little bit different the the pollen will just kind of jump onto the bee but the bee will kind of groom itself kind of mixing the the pollen a little bit with the nectar and forming like you said those pockets these little pollen pants on its hind legs to put the pollen in so it's just neat to see that different plants need different types of pollination in order to be successfully pollinated. Yeah, I was watching, um, I think it was last Easter last year, we had some artichokes that had gone into flower and oh, they're so pretty, right? <laughs> yeah. And we had them in vases on the table And right in front of me, this honeybee just landed in one of them. And, you know, it's so tiny compared to this giant flower. And it was like going through Mm -hmm. this purple tree forest for the bee. And it's just like going all through there and getting all this pollen and kind of like rolling itself around, like you said. So neat. And then it seemed like she fell asleep numerous times (laughs) while she was doing Like she just literally just stopped for five, 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden it would be like, whoa, I fell asleep. I should keep foraging. (laughs) She did that a lot. It was really funny. 
How neat. <laughs> you get to see the coolest things. You're always seeing bees sleeping. <laughs> I'm always seeing bees sleeping. I mean, it's just so funny. I have this tree in the backyard. It's a deciduous tree, so it has absolutely no leaves on it right now. But when it did, I saw a bumblebee just kind of stop on one of the leaves and then she crawled or he crawled. I don't know. Are there male? Yeah. It was all the bees you see out foraging are females. That's what I thought. I know. I'm always calling them yeah. females. And I'm like, well, maybe there's some males. So so this this beautiful bee just kind of crawled up between four or five leaves and just tucked in for the night. I was like, wait, what? I've never seen that. That's so cool. You know, oh, so I had cool. to go over and video it. And I'm like, I'm sure everybody that watches my feed is just so sick and tired of my bee <laughs> videos. <laughs> like, look at what I saw today. <laughs> oh, it's so neat, though, because it's something that you don't you don't see unless you're looking for it, mm-hmm. unless you're like very present in nature and you, you know, that's such a, it's a really special moment to capture. So no, I wouldn't be sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, I'll start sending them all to you from now on. <laughs> yeah, they are, they're really neat. What is the inside? I mean, I know it's something that you don't normally see, but I know that we have some ideas mm-hmm. kind of like ant farms, you know, so I, I've yeah. seen the the bee farms, so to speak, with the clear glass, so you see everything that they're doing in there. But I would yeah, imagine yeah. even if they're inside of this clear plexiglass box, they probably don't want to be right up against the clear part where the light's coming in. There's more stuff going on deeper in that hive. So what do we know about what happens inside of that colony? So the ways that bees communicate are through vibrations, taste, smell, and touch. So bees actually have 3 million hairs on their body. It's the same amount of hairs as a squirrel. And comparing that to the human head, we have about 100,000 hairs. Oh, my God. That's um, crazy. And I know. Isn't that to think about that? Yeah. Um, they're so tiny. They are. And then the older the bee gets, the more hair she'll lose because she just starts to – she's been around the block a few times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so when they're first born, they just look like these little Muppets. They have hair just <laughs> everywhere. They're just so cute. But these hairs serve as receptors to odor and vibration. And their antenna allow them to smell. And bees will produce more than 28 unique pheromones. Not all of them are studied, but there's 28 that have been studied. And these pheromones help to regulate functions, whether it be behavioral or physiological. But it's one of the main ways that they will communicate. So the queen has her own set of pheromones that she can communicate to the hive. And then the bees themselves have their own pheromones as well that they'll communicate from the time that they're an egg and, you know, through their entire life. And then the male drone bees have a pheromone that they can communicate with to help find the queen when she mates. So like these pheromones can be, um, how I had mentioned earlier, a bee can detect, like a nurse bee can detect whether or not the egg laid is, is a viable egg. So this could be like an egg that could have been laid by a worker, which doesn't really happen too often. Worker bees, the female bees, can lay eggs if there is no queen bee present, but they will only lay unfertilized eggs, resulting in male bees in a hive that won't thrive because the male bees can't 
do anything to contribute to the workings of the hive because mm-hmm. the male bee only exists to, well, he has a big job. It's to mate and to, and to ensure the continuation of the species, but he doesn't have any of the necessary organs to collect nectar, to collect pollen, to guard the hive, to feed anything. He can't even feed himself. Oh, do they look different? I mean, is there a... They do, yeah. So their abdomens are a little more stout and bigger. They're a lot bigger than worker bees. And they have two eyes that connect at the top of their head. And their eyes are really big so they can better see the queen when they're out trying to find her to mate. Oh my gosh. So is their vision better than the female bees? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> But they are also, so they have their own pheromone that when they find these areas called the drone congregation area, they will use this pheromone to find the queen and the queen will go to this area too. And it's hard to say like where the site is, it's usually like 50 feet up in the air. And I don't know how they know where it is, but they know, the drones know, and they'll use this pheromone to attract other drones to this area making it suitable for a virgin queen to come and get mated. So the drone bees will fly like half a mile to a mile from their hive to this drone congregation area, and the queen will fly up to nine miles to ensure that she's not mating with any other drones that could possibly be from her hive. So there is no interbreeding. So the nurse bees are able to tell if this egg has been interbred by the pheromone that it puts out. So they will eat that egg, they cannibalize it. So those are, you know, that's one of the pheromones that to me is so fascinating. I'm like, wow, they know that this is a viable egg and this is not a viable egg. So there's no use in using their resources and raising a not viable egg. Right. Um, They have... So like within the hive, the worker bees will go through about 10 different jobs in her life. And these pheromones help to dictate when she will move from one job to another. Um, So it's not really the queen that dictates what happens within the hive. She's just another piece of the puzzle in the whole health of the hive for what's happening, what needs to happen. Because like I had mentioned earlier, like during a prolific time in the year, when the bees are able to go out and collect a lot of resources are also putting out these pheromones when they return to the hive. Like, oh, we need more bees to come and receive this nectar that I'm bringing in. You know, it's like a chain reaction. Oh, there's resources coming in. Oh, okay, well, we can lay eggs and we can feed more bees and we can grow our hive or, you know, things like that. So it's it's pretty neat to think about how one thing can lead to another and then lead to another. And one pheromone that people talk about a lot are the alarm pheromones, you know, that are released when you get stung. How if you're ever near a bunch of bees and how another bee may sting you or you may get attacked by bees because it leaves this pheromone on you. That that stinger leaves, it's like that's the bullseye. That's that pheromone that other bees know to come and oh, this is where we sting. <laughs> wow. Uh, I think I've been mm-hmm. stung only twice ever. I was walking barefoot through grass with a bunch of clover. That's usually when it happens. And I was a kid and, you know, so I I got stung then and I really hated the bee. (laughs) And then, you know, now I realize like, like I should have been paying attention. Um, 
And then another time I had my hands behind my back and I was just listening to my friend talk and somebody must have swatted a bee near me and the bee landed on my finger mm-hmm. and stung me. Um, oh. But, you know, it's, it is painful and it's, it's so scary to think about like if there had been a swarm or more bees that were like, Oh, let's go sting her. They would have stung me on my finger. Cause it's like, okay, we've left yeah. that mark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, actually talking about that, my former brother-in-law, he was, uh, and I think he still is a tree trimmer, um, worked for parks and recs and, you know, just make sure that there's no bees. And he, checked out this tree and you know they even have the the smoke so they they are trained in how to deal with bees and get them out safely if they need to uh, trim a branch and he said there was absolutely from what he saw no indication of a hive inside of this tree so they started trimming it he was up in the in the basket they still have to harness up to get in there he started the saw and start sawing and this swarm just came out and attacked them naturally thinking, you know, it's under attack. And he said that there were so many bees. He started yelling to his partner to get the basket down and he was just getting stung instantaneously. And he's like trying to pull all of these harnesses off. He jumped out like six feet before the <gasps> before the oh basket came all the way down and he said that the hive followed him and that it mm-hmm. infiltrated the cab where his partner was mm-hmm. sitting so they ran for like three blocks and there happened to be a lady who was watering her yard and she heard them <gasps> screaming oh, and so she watered them down and Um, (laughs) and that kind of got the bees to I guess go away and they had run far enough away as Mm -hmm. well is what I'm assuming that the bees kind of were like okay we've chased them away but um they both ended up in the hospital and yeah he got sick to his stomach the whole thing every you know my sister was like so worried he was gonna die and yeah then the next day he goes you know I woke up and I felt like I was like 15 years old again because I had so much energy. <laughs> it was just crazy. It was probably the adrenaline, you know, but I've always thought that was such an incredible story. He said when he was running, yeah. he was running in the dark because all of these bees had just swarmed around his head. That's terrifying. Yeah. And you can't do anything about it. Like, thank God that lady was out there with her hose. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. So those are always like scary stories, but I don't know if that happens a lot. Cause I remember another former in-law, she was out gardening and there was a dead rose bush in her yard and she mm-hmm. decided to dig it up. And while she was digging it up, a swarm of bees came out and these were, oh. I don't know if they were honeybees or what they were. And she did get stung. Um, in fact, she had a bee stuck in her ear and she oh, <laughs> got to oh. the doctor's office and the doctor's oh. going, what's wrong? She goes, you got to get this bee out. That's all oh. I hear in there, you know, because it was buzzing oh. around. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know it was really bad. But, you know, despite that, I just um, <laughs> I've never thought that, that bees were really one of the even the worst insects, you know, like I've had tarantula hawks in my yard. 
Um, I don't know know what those are, but they're (laughs) really scary. But even those, like, of course, I'm not going to go anywhere near it, but I Mm -hmm. don't think that most insects are really just aggressive creatures, Mm -hmm. you know? So despite those stories, I I don't really worry about bees very much. Yeah. I mean, but those are like, those are very crazy stuff. Yeah. (laughs) just so crazy. (laughs) You know, I'm so glad though that he lived to tell the tale because that's a really scary situation because you don't know. Like a lot of people don't know they're allergic to bees until it's too late. Right. So, but especially in that capacity, when you get stung over like hundreds of times, it's like you definitely, he definitely could have died. He could have. I know. He's so lucky. Yeah, that's scary. It, it was That's frightening. Really but he did tell me, you know, for about three or four days afterwards, he just felt like this virility, I guess, you know, and, um, yeah. you know, and again, I, I think it's probably adrenaline, but I know that there's a lot of stories out there too, you know, like they've got these bee sting therapies. And- yeah, apitherapy is really popular with people with like Crohn's disease and arthritis and things like that. So it could have just, you know, all whatever inflammation he had in his body, it could have just brought that all down. And he probably did feel like he was 15 again. (laughs) Wow. I know. I know that therapy is out there. I just, you know, like to me, ethically, I I know it helps, but also ethically, you're killing the bee in the process. Yeah, that's a safe, something else. Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard decision to make. Yeah. Another one, since we're on the subject, is royal jelly. Mm -hmm. And is there really any value in it? So the nurse bees are actually the ones that produce the royal jelly. So the nurse bees are the ones that feed everybody in the hive. So she's the one that will visit all the cells and feed the larva, the pupa, the male drone bees, adult bees, and the queen bees. So actually, this is the brood-produced pheromone. It's a type of pheromone that's released by larva and is detected by the nurse bee. And it lets, it lets the nurse bee know the sex, the caste, and the age of the larva so she can figure out what to feed them, whether it is royal jelly, because every bee in the hive is fed royal jelly for the first few days of its life. It's only the queen that is continuously fed royal jelly and at a different concentration of fats and acids within that royal jelly. That's why her diet is so special because her main job is to lay eggs. So they have to make sure that she develops in a certain way. So I think the way people collect royal jelly, I'm not really sure how it's done. I went to an apiary business that did produce royal jelly, but I didn't pay attention to how they did it because I don't, I don't agree with it. (laughs) So I just kind of tuned that part out, but I should have, in hindsight, I probably should have listened because it's something that's, that's important um, to know. I know there's a lot of research behind it that's in the preliminary stages on how the health benefits are to humans. Um, I've tried it before. I don't, I did not like it. I thought it was pretty disgusting. Um, but it's also hard to find a really good source of royal jelly. That's true royal jelly. And I know some of it's used in like face creams and masks and things like that. Yeah, I, I don't really know. Don't know about that one. I'm sorry. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. And I know that there's also bee pollen. Like they'll add that to yeah. go somewhere on your, your smoothies. Yeah, yeah. So I had read recently actually that 
bee pollen is best digested when you grind it up. So the bees will kind of like pack this pollen on their legs, but they will pack it so tightly and with a mixture of nectar that it could be harder to digest right away. So if you kind of break it down before you digest it, it's better for you. It's easier to, to digest on your system. Yeah, because it but looks it's really very granular. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's a little rock pretty much. Right, right. <laughs> um, but it's, for the bees, it's their source of protein and vitamins. And same with, with humans, it's a source of B12 for us. But it's all it's different because the bees will forage on certain plants based on what they need within their hive, because each plant will have a different nutritional content. So depending on what's needed, they'll go and they'll forage only for one thing, or they'll search something out just based on whatever they need. Yeah, you know, I just thought about another really interesting thing that happened. So I was working in healthcare, and my boss's office, was, she had like her own office, and then I had an office outside of hers, but hers was a, a completely contained office, and it was surrounded in glass, and we just saw a bee buzzing around in there. We thought, well, that's weird because this office is really far away from the front door and we're on the second floor. So that bee would have had to fly up the stairwell and down the hallway to get in here, you know? (laughs) And then a very short time later, here's like two more bees in there and they just kept coming in. And I think they were coming in through the light fixture. And so eventually she totally vacated her office and a couple of bees got out from under underneath the door. So we put some towels or, you know, somebody's sweater or something underneath there. And Mm -hmm. before we knew it, there were thousands of bees inside of her office. (gasps) And they were creating this rope, like they were hanging onto each other. And it was like ropes of bees coming down from this light (gasps) fixture. And I was like, Oh my God, this is insane. Well, you know, this was back in the nineties. Nobody, I don't think that there was really like all of this idea that you could rescue a hive. It was just, you know, you Mm -hmm. called an exterminator. And so that's what the office did. And so I remember I went to lunch, the exterminator had not shown up yet. And I was like, Oh my God, there's all of these bees in the office. I was equal amounts fascinated and terrified because I still had not gotten over my fear of bugs. But when I came back from lunch, they were like, it looked like they were all dead on the ground. And I said, oh, did the exterminator come? And he hadn't. And so when he showed up, he looked at these bees and he said that, well, one, probably the queen bee had left the hive and all of these bees had followed the queen, but she either died or made a left turn and they all made a right turn and ended up, <laughs> ended up in the office. And his explanation was that the bees follow these pheromonal trails. And when there is no longer a trail to follow, they kind of freak out. They they don't know what to do and they just sort of lay down and die. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is exactly what it looked like happened because like he showed up and he's like, oh, there's nothing for me to do. Yeah. I mean, maybe there was a dead queen there and they, they you know, like they're dutiful soldiers, like they're supposed to, they just stayed with her. <laughs> I've seen that. I've seen that happen before. 
Because she's still putting off some kind of pheromone, even when she's like, it could be dissipating, but they could just be staying around her. If a queen dies, what mm-hmm. does the, the rest of the colony do? So what they can do is they can raise another queen within the hive. So they will usually select an egg that's somewhere between like 12 and 36 hours old. And usually closer to 12 hours, so that way they can really give it a good diet of royal jelly. But they will make, they'll make another queen. Wow. Yeah, and it will take her about 14 days to hatch. And then it will take another two weeks for her to mature and then go out for her mating flight. And then she'll come back and then she'll start laying eggs. So it could be like a month or so from the time she hatches until the time that she starts laying eggs that you'll start to see something because of the timing for her to develop. I I think bees might be your spirit animal. You have so many cool interactions with these. I know. I know. That's so true. That's so true. I know. I I, I probably, we're going to keep talking and I'll probably come up with some more stories about bees. (laughs) But during that time period then, the hive just kind of, maintains itself and just prepares for this new queen yeah so they'll know because of these pheromones that they have a queen coming so they'll continue assuming that it's a strong colony they will be able to still bounce back because bees will continue to die during this time but assuming there's enough bees that are hatching and then more bees that are working that they should still be able to thrive and they'll just continue to collect pollen and nectar and just be ready for her for when she comes. She hatches. Wow. When she does hatch, if there's another queen present, well, assuming in this situation the queen didn't die, but there could be another queen present in the hive. When she hatches, she will make this piping noise, alerting the rest of the other queens in the hive that she's here, she's ready to rule. And then she will go find these other queens if there are more than one queen that hasn't hatched yet. Because usually the bees will create more than one queen at a time, just in case, you know, as backups. She'll go and she'll find these other queens. She'll rip open their cell and she'll sting them. She'll kill them. Or if there's another queen that's alive, they'll just kind of duke it out. To really? whoever wins. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And this is the only time in her life that she will use her stinger. And her stinger isn't barbed like a worker stinger is. So she's able to sting and then retract it back. And when she's first born, this is when her venom is also most potent. I always just imagine like, do, 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 do. Right. <laughs> and then... <laughs> I, was, I was hearing all of the fanfare, all of the pomp. <laughs> I have arrived. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is amazing. And, yeah. you know, like this, like I said, these secret worlds that these animals mm-hmm. participate in and they're so complex and, yeah, you know, I, I feel like we could probably sit here for, you know, three or four hours just talking about everything that these bees do. Um, I should ask you because you were kind enough to bring me something super, super amazing, which is this pomegranate blossom honey. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go into tasting? I don't know what your time is like. Yeah, yes, I would love to. I've got such a new understanding of bees and how they interact with the world around them. Just from this conversation, I feel like we just hit the tip of the iceberg. 
It's fascinating how everything's interconnected from the electrical signatures on flowers to how different bee species live to the complex and mesmerizing world and culture of the hive. I hope that this episode encourages you to plant more flowers, let the dandelions grow a little bit wild, and some of your herbs and veggies, let them bolt. And don't forget the water. As Elisa said, bees depend more and more on the urban landscape. So every little bit that you do helps. Please be sure to come back next week when we get into the fun aspects of honey and honey tasting. Links are included in the show notes. And also, please take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com, all at The Queen Trail Podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E Podcast. I am Syl Annan, The Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, lots of flowers, sunshine, sweetness, elegance, and beauty.